This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're going to be discussing anything and everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments of mental illness. Along the way, trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues and to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry with special focus on areas such as military and veterans' mental health, children's mental health, and psychiatry and the law. And welcome back to the show. I had to take a little hiatus last week. Hope you enjoyed the encore presentation of Psychiatry Today that was presented. And uh, also want to remind you that, as always, the uh, show can be downloaded from iTunes or also listen to on americaswebradio.com and thank you very much for all, all of those of you who tune in whether it's listening live on americaswebradio.com where all the programming is streamed live or whether you're on that website playing back the show after it's been archived or if you're listening to this on iTunes very much appreciate your listenership well Tonight we're going to start with yet another psychiatry and the law update. Uh, no, gratefully I don't have another mental health related shooting to tell you about, but we do have a significant issue to discuss in the wake of the verdict that came down since the last time uh, I had a show on the air about the uh, Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooter. The issue is, should we execute the mentally ill? James Holmes was up for a death penalty sentence in that trial. And in the course of that, the question came up, well, is it ethical and should we execute the mentally ill? The final witness in the sentencing trial of the Aurora Theater shooter, James Holmes, testified before the court in Centennial, Colorado. Ashley Moser was the mother of the shooting's youngest victim, six-year-old Veronica Moser Sullivan, who was shot four times during the massacre. Ashley Moser herself was also shot. She lost her unborn child and now uses a motorized wheelchair. She wept throughout her testimony explaining that the little girl she lost in 2012 was her best friend in her life. She said, I don't know who I am anymore because I was a mom when I was 18 
And that's all I knew how to be, she told jurors who were considering in the sentencing phase whether James Holmes should be sentenced to life without possibility of parole or sentenced to death, as was proposed by the prosecution. The young mother's story was just one of the many tragedies underscored in two days of victim testimony uh, that took place during the sentencing portion of Holmes' trial. In 48 hours, the jury listened to the dozen men and women tell personal stories of heartbreak related to the 12 people who were killed and the 70 wounded on July 20th, 2012. And they decided whether Holmes would live out the rest of his life in prison or die by lethal injection. And in their announcement, the jury sentenced Holmes to life in prison with no chance of parole, rejecting the death penalty. To reach a death sentence, the jurors had to agree unanimously. If there is even one dissenter, the sentence is life in prison. The jury heard James Holmes' story from family, friends, and others who knew the man behind the brutal attack in Aurora, Colorado, the jury learned that Holmes was a child loved by his family, uncommonly bright, and then they listened to an account of the 27-year-old's slow descent into schizophrenia. At age 12, according to a CNN report, Holmes began isolating himself from other boys instead of playing with friends. In high school, his cross-country running coach described him as otherworldly and uncomfortable with close interaction with his teammates. After college, he returned home where he'd stay up all night and sleep all day. Colleagues at a pill factory where he worked recounted that he frequently stared at the space on the job. Eventually, Holmes went to grad school at the University of Colorado's Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora to study neuroscience, where he was suddenly failing instead of garnering the straight A marks he was used to. He said he had a, quote, broken brain, unquote, which the neuroscience student finally decided was unfixable. According to the defense, Holmes had a theory. He sent his disturbing idea of, quote, human capital, unquote, to the Colorado University Denver student psychiatrist, Dr. Lynn Fenton, through the mail just hours before he entered the theater where he opened fire on the audience. In it, he described how he might increase the value of his own life by taking others' lives, a nonsensical, obsessive notion. There is no doubt that Holmes is mentally ill and has been for some time. Every doctor who has testified, whether that be for the prosecution or the defense, is in agreement. With a family history of mental health issues, the court-appointed forensic psychologist noted that he was genetically loaded for mental illness, and while in jail, Holmes suffered a psychotic break. He licked the walls of his cell, spread feces, did somersaults, among other bizarre behaviors. 
In March of 2012, four months prior to the shooting, Holmes admitted to Fenton that he was having thoughts of murder, and in July 2012, he carried them out. And while he might be mentally ill, that doesn't mean he's not responsible for his actions. The jury's guilty verdict means Holmes knew right from wrong when he killed 12 people and injured 70, despite his mental illness. But his attorneys say that if he wasn't mentally ill, suffering from hallucinations and delusional thoughts, the shooting never would have happened. So this question stands before jurors in determining whether or not Holmes will serve life behind bars without the possibility of parole, or be executed by lethal injection. Does the jury unanimously find, beyond a reasonable doubt, that the mitigating factors that exist do not outweigh the aggravating factors proven by the prosecution? Therefore, deciding in favor of death. What is the jury actually deciding? And this case certainly is a good example for other similar cases that have been come that have come before and will happen from now on. If Holmes suffers from a form of psychosis, why didn't his lawyer's insanity defense work? Well, that defense is very hard to argue. You're basically saying that the person is not responsible for his actions and shouldn't be held accountable. And in this case, the jury found mental illness or not, he still was responsible for his actions, still able to tell right from wrong. But as far as the insanity defense, think of it this way: if a paranoid person believes a neighbor is sending X-rays through the walls directed at him. Obviously, a psychotic delusion. He might kill the neighbor as a product of his mental illness, but he still understands that the murder is wrong. Therefore, regardless of mental ill illness, guilty of murder. So the insanity defense is quite a high bar to get over. So high, in fact, that an insanity plea is very rarely attempted. After outcry and major reform, following John Hinckley Jr.'s acquittal for attempting to assassinate President Ronald Reagan in 1981, this form of defense is rarely even used. When it is used in high-profile cases, it often makes news, which is why we tend to believe it's much more common than it is. With a legitimate insanity plea. It's probably less than one tenth of one percent successful in big crimes. It's very difficult to prove insanity, and the worse the crime, the less likely it is to be successful. So while Holmes does have a mental health condition, he was aware enough to know what he was doing at the time of the act, and then it was up to the jury to answer the question. In determining its ultimate sentence, how much weight do we give to the fact that he's mentally ill? Really, the prosecution has proved the aggravating factors, which are the factors that prove guilt. So then, it's up to the jury to weigh that against his being mentally ill. 
This is one of the reasons it may be difficult for Holmes and others in such situations to avoid the death penalty as it stands. It's always touchy when you say a person is mentally ill in the insanity defense. As a result, it's a mitigating factor that is evidence that may lead to a lesser charge or sentence. You're losing some of your credibility with the jury in sentencing. Now, in Holmes' case, the jury has, has already decided that the mental illness was not enough to excuse him. He faced 165 charges in all. After months of testimony, including 200 witnesses brought forth by the prosecution, he was convicted of every last one. 24 counts of first-degree murders, 140 counts of attempted first-degree murder, two counts for each victim, along with an additional count of possessing explosives. But the X factor in determining a death penalty versus life imprisonment is mental illness itself. All right, we have to stop here. We'll take a break. We'll be right back with more on Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And we are on a Psychiatry and the Law update examining the issue of whether or not it is ethical to execute the mentally ill and looking at the issues 
that jurors were weighing in the trial of James Holmes, the Colorado theater shooter, in the sentencing phase. Again, they had already determined that he was guilty of murder uh, despite his mental illness. Now they were determining in this later phase whether or not he should face the death penalty. They ultimately decided on life in prison without parole. Now, uh, as, as far as the horror of what happened in Aurora, again, it's easy to forget the issues of mental illness. Um, his parents pleaded for people to consider that on the brink of his trial. Uh, they wrote in the Denver Post an open letter saying, we are always praying for everyone in Aurora. We wish that July 20, 2012 never happened. He is not a monster. He is a human being gripped by a severe mental illness. We believe that the death penalty is morally wrong, especially when the condemned is mentally ill. So where exactly do we as a society stand on mental illness and the death penalty? According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, known as NAMI, which is a national organization that advocates for the mentally ill and their family members, we define mental illness this way. Medical conditions that disrupt a person's thinking, feeling, mood, ability to relate to others, and daily functioning. Severe mental illnesses may include schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, panic disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and borderline personality disorder. Make no mistake, Holmes' actions were and still are deplorable, but many are wondering if execution is ever the answer for the mentally ill. Nothing gives one individual the right to take another individual's life, according to one expert, but if he were to have been given the death penalty Mental health advocates would likely say that the system has failed a young man, that regardless of his actions, he needed the appropriate care to treat his condition. Holmes's parents are not alone in their sentiments regarding capital punishment for the mentally ill. Late last year, public policy research conducted a national poll to gauge Americans' stance on executing someone who suffers from such condition. By a two-to-one margin, most of the country did not favor the death penalty in these cases. Results held steady regardless of race, religion, political affiliation, region, or gender. At the time of that poll, Scott Panetti's fate was also being decided in the state of Texas, where he was convicted of murdering his in-laws while his wife and daughter looked on. He has been diagnosed with schizophrenia. He attempted to serve as his own attorney during his trial in 1992, sputtering through his defense. Panetti showed up to court wearing cowboy garb. He tried calling Jesus Christ, the Pope, and John F. Kennedy to the stand. He believes he is standing in the middle of a struggle between God and the devil, and his lawyers, along with many psychiatrists, protested execution, 
saying he is too mentally ill to receive the death penalty. According to the Supreme Court ruling in the 1986 Ford v. Wainwright decision, a mentally ill person cannot be executed unless they understand the reason behind the execution, the time it is to take place. So if they were sane enough to receive a conviction and death sentence, but their mental health declines further while they are in prison, something we do see as mental illness tends to worsen with age, a convicted person might never see the death penalty. But what about full exemptions? There are a couple of precedents for exempting groups of people. We don't execute juveniles under the age of 18 because we know their brains are still developing. We don't execute those with mental retardation. And it's not a stretch about mental illness. We're starting to go there, and there's a fairly spirited discussion about whether or not they should be subject to the death penalty and if they are less worthy of it. An American Bar Association task force in 2006 recommended those with severe mental illness not receive the death penalty. Since then, similar suggestions have been put forth by the American Psychiatric Association and the American Psychological Association. The task force examined Atkins versus Virginia, saying those with mental disability were ineligible for execution. They took the case of juveniles outlined in Roper versus Simmons. The task force used the same logic in response to mental illness. It was recommended that we not execute people who are sick, and it's taken a long time to get this far. It's all still very murky, though. Some states have legislation in the works to prohibit the execution of the mentally ill, but nothing has passed yet. People with severe mental health disorders are still subject to this fate as their competency and crimes are weighed against their conditions. In May 2015, Cecil Clayton was put to death by the state of Missouri. He had an IQ of 71, had lost 20% of his frontal lobe in 1972 in a sawmill accident, and suffered from schizophrenia. In 1996, he killed a police officer and was sentenced to death. Lawyers pleaded on his behalf, saying he didn't understand the reasons for his punishment. In the wake of recent events, from Aurora, Colorado, to Sandy Hook, Connecticut, mental illness has been at the forefront of the gun control debate. Do guns kill people, or is it untreated mental illness to blame? Are we really doing enough to help those who are mentally ill? And would it prevent these tragedies if we were? How can we better treat and handle mental illness? In Holmes's trial, the question of how to deal with and treat a perpetrator's mental illness has been an important subject of discussion and has sparked widespread debate. In the trial, much was made of what Colorado University of Denver's Dr. Fenton, the psychiatrist who treated him, what she knew, 
and whether she should have reported Holmes's condition as a potential threat. He admitted to having homicidal thoughts, sometimes three to four times a day, and those thoughts were getting progressively worse. Under HIPAA laws, or Health Information Privacy Act laws, when a patient tells his or her doctor is privileged information, except in specific instances, Fenton could not have reported her concerns to Holmes's parents under those guidelines, and perhaps not even to authorities. Many states, including Colorado, have so-called duty to warn regulations that lie outside HIPAA laws. This means that medical providers or health professionals must inform authorities if they suspect a person is a threat to public health or safety with, without regard to privacy of medical information or patient confidentiality or doctor-patient privilege. Now, in court, Dr. Fenton said her hands were tied. She couldn't report Holmes, she said, because he never discussed any particular person, group, or area he wished to harm. Those specifics are generally needed to allow a clinician to disclose a potential threat to the authorities. And Holmes had no other risk factors, such as a prior history of violence, aggression, or drug and alcohol abuse, all of which are known to be factors that suggest he would be a risk to act on these homicidal thoughts. When it comes to preventing crimes before they happen, experts are still not effective in determining whether violence is likely. Now, I would like to expand as a psychiatrist myself on <clears throat> this issue of how Dr. Fenton handled uh, her treatment of Mr. Holmes. And I want to be very, very sensitive to the fact that it's all too easy for anyone, including a colleague such as myself, to Monday morning quarterback and question someone's judgment after the fact. So, you know, I can try uh, very hard to be even-handed. But regardless, uh, I think that Dr. Fenton's hands weren't so strictly tied as she felt. Um, she had options. Um, even if Holmes did not specify a possible specific target of his homicidal thoughts, um, this is certainly still a potential mental health emergency when someone is expressing these thoughts. And so she could have reported this to the authorities. She could have reported this to his family. And if she documented very carefully that she felt the situation was an emergency and therefore it was justifiable medically to uh, waive patient-client privilege and health information privacy, uh, in my way of thinking, uh, she would have been protected even under HIPAA laws and also could not have been subject to uh, a lawsuit from Mr. Holmes for breach of patient confidentiality. She also had uh, options including 
<clears throat> offering Mr. Holmes hospitalization on the basis of his reporting homicidal ideation in order to protect him from harming anyone, um, even to the extent of hospitalizing him against his will. In most states, if someone may be in acute danger to others as well as himself, they can be hospitalized against their will. All right, we're going to take another commercial break. More on this issue and other mental health issues when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. Again, we're talking about psychiatry and the law, considering the issue of the death penalty when it comes to mentally ill murder convictions, and specifically talking about violence and mental illness. Now, again, it's very difficult to predict whether someone's going to become violent or not. Researchers have found links between mental illness and violent behaviors, especially they've looked into schizophrenia, which, at least among the very highly publicized, notorious cases such as Holmes, seems to be the prevalent diagnosis. But risk assessment is far from an exact science. In an analysis published in 2012 in the British Medical Journal, Experts analyzed 68 studies of more than 25,000 people in psychiatric institutions, prisons, which have now become de facto psychiatric institutions, or detention centers. They found that when researchers used common means of assessment to determine whether or not a person might commit a violent act, 41% of those who were predicted to violently offend ended up doing so. In the group predicted to be nonviolent, only 9% actually committed a violent crime. So in order to break this down, 
Authorities would have to lock up two people to prevent one of them from becoming violent, leading the authors to say that risk assessment tools in their current form can only be used to roughly classify individuals at the group level and not to safely determine criminal prognosis in an individual case. In terms of simply treating mental illness in general, for the sake of doing so and to help reduce crime, society is still struggling. There is a shortage of mental health professionals and treating facilities. Those who are trained with advanced degrees in the field are only able to treat a segment of the population. Resources are always limited and the work is difficult. There is a constant battle within the system and that includes relatively to who can be treated and only certain classifications of mental illness or reimbursed. Stigma is also a major factor keeping those with mental illness from seeking proper care. Research has shown that stigma negatively impacts an individual's desire to get help. Because the stigma is so pervasive, the likelihood of an individual divulging their mental health condition is less likely. In approximately 50% of cases, mental health and substance abuse concerns begin by the age of 14. Roughly 75% present symptoms by the age of 24. Some estimates have suggested that one in four people suffer some type of mental health concern, and we continue to see those numbers climb. Now, that statistic makes for catchy sound bites and splashy headlines, but it's not so scary when you consider that that doesn't mean that most of those people are suffering from a major psychiatric syndrome such as schizophrenia. Uh, for example, the majority of those people who qualify for any mental health issue at all perhaps have severe anxiety, post-traumatic stress, what have you. And it doesn't lead to anything that is life-threatening or disabling. Now, <clears throat> the number of individuals treated is far less than what is necessary. If left untreated, especially something like schizophrenia, of course a patient can end up in a terrible crisis. There was a movement in the 1960s and 1970s to release those with mental illness from psychiatric institutions and offer community mental health centers for care and treatment. Uh, this was born out of a couple of different issues. For the one thing, there was horribly inhumane treatment in large state psychiatric hospitals where patients were largely warehoused and uh, overdosed with strong medications and not given much therapy or rehabilitation. For another thing, <clears throat> newer developments in medications allowed people to keep their symptoms under control and enjoy a higher level of functioning. But while the release from institutions happened, the promised community mental health centers never did. And now what is happening in the decades that have followed? These mentally ill people are being re-institutionalized, but they're winding up in prison uh, because they wind up at higher risk of committing crimes 
usually not capital ones, and therefore uh, wind up in prison where their mental health may finally be getting addressed, but clearly in that setting, that's not the optimal environment for effective treatment. So we have a terribly flawed system, and in this case, the jury decided how much of this matters as they contemplated Holmes's fate after closing arguments. They weighed compassion for mental illness with due justice for the victims and their horribly hurting loved ones, because absolutely nothing takes away from the fact that 12 innocent people are gone and 70 others wounded and countless families are now scarred by loss. The nation is still reeling in the wake of tragedies like the one in Aurora, and we've had mass shootings seemingly occurring at every turn since then. It is at the moment a no-win battle. A lot of things will have to change in order to prevent tragedies like this, uh, but right now there don't seem to be any signs that the glaring gaps in the mental health treatment system that may prevent these issues uh, will be fixed anytime soon. Now, in a related story, since I last talked with you on the air a couple of weeks ago, a leading Republican senator offered a new piece of legislation having to do with guns and mental health. Uh, <clears throat> this senator proposed a National Rifle Association-backed bill that he said would make the federal background check system for gun buyers more effective and bolster programs for treating people with mental illness. The measure drew criticism from groups advocating stricter controls over firearms, who said it doesn't go far enough, and singled out provisions they said would make it easier for some unstable people to obtain deadly weapons. But it was backed by the National Alliance on Mental Illness and groups representing police organizations, correctional workers, and social workers, which, combined with the NRA support, could broaden its appeal. Number two Senate Republican John Cornyn of Texas unveiled the legislation in the wake of last month's mass shooting in a Louisiana movie theater by a gunman with mental problems. That and other recent firearms attacks have called attention to holes in the background check system and programs for people with psychological difficulties. Cornyn said that while past bills have been designed to drive a political wedge on the issue, his was aimed at helping people with mental health issues to hopefully preempt them from committing an act of violence. That's an ambitious goal. The bill's prospects are uncertain. The bill's background check provisions are far weaker than Senate legislation that Republicans and the NRA killed two years ago. That legislation would have required the checks for firearms bought at gun shows and online. Cornyn has an A-plus voting rating from the NRA, which has long impeded gun restrictions in Congress but has backed some efforts to make it harder for mentally ill people to purchase weapons. Currently, background checks are required only for sales by federally licensed gun dealers. P. 
people who have been people who have been legally ruled mentally ill or committed to mental institutions are already barred from buying firearms but states are not required to send those records to the FBI run federal database leaving it uneven and therefore leaving loopholes which uh, allow problems like mentally ill people to still be able to purchase guns. Under Cornyn's bill, states sending at least 90% of their records on people with serious mental problems to the federal background check database would get law enforcement grant increases of up to 5%. So what he's suggesting in his legislation is you incentivize states to do a better job of reporting the serious mental, mentally ill to the FBI, increasing the chance that if one such person tried to get through the normal background check for purchasing a weapon, then they would be rejected. States providing less than that could see grants cut by similar amounts. So it's a carrot and stick approach. Gun control advocates said the measure should have expanded background checks to online and gun show sales, which of course the NRA opposes. They also complained that the bill would let some people discharged from involuntary psychiatric treatment who currently need court approval to buy firearms immediately purchase guns. The bill would also require court action before barring gun purchases by veterans declared incompetent by the Veterans Affairs Department. Currently, such veterans cannot obtain weapons. The bill would give state and local governments more flexibility to use federal funds to screen for prisoners' mental health problems and improve training for law enforcement officers and others on handling emergencies involving the mentally ill. It also would let civil judges order outpatient treatment for people with mental problems short of committing them to institutions. When John Russell Hauser killed two people and wounded nine at a theater in Lafayette, Louisiana, there were mental health problems he had. His family knew about them, and these had not been sent to the background check system so he was able to buy a gun at a shop in Alabama. He killed himself after a confrontation with police. And then Dylan Roof charged in the June massacre of nine people at a historically black church in Charleston, South Carolina, bought his gun after an FBA background check examiner didn't discover that he'd been arrested for possessing illegal drugs, and that should have blocked his purchase. All right, well, there's other sides to this issue. Let's take another commercial break here. We'll finish our thoughts on that and have other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. 
They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. My name is Dr. Jeff Terry from Mobile, Alabama. I love taking care of my patients and not computers. That is why I need your help. On October 1st, the government will mandate that I implement the new ICD-10 coding system, and if not able to do so, then I will be put out of business and my patients will have to find a new physician. Please call and write your congressmen and senators today and tell them no to ICD-10. Tell them physicians need a grace period in order to concentrate on you, the patient, and not the computer. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Babe, with all the latest mental health updates. And we're talking about some legislation that Senator John Cornyn of Texas has proposed. Uh, it would supposedly tighten the rules surrounding background checks uh, to prevent mentally ill people from being able to purchase guns, severely mentally ill people, those have been adjudicated uh, seriously mental ill in a court of law. Now, uh, another senator, Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer, also introduced legislation providing extra federal money to states that send a broad range of data to the federal background check system, including information about the mentally ill, violent criminals, and domestic abusers. Well, I think no matter what side of this issue that you're on, uh, I see problems with these approaches. Uh, First of all, let's just take a look at Second Amendment rights, which the United States has made very, very clear uh, that uh, as a society we value very highly. Uh, So is it up to anyone to declare even the seriously mentally ill uh, unable to have the privilege of Second Amendment rights? You know, if you're you're not going to want to restrict those rights to those who are not mentally ill, um, you know, are you going to make the decision that the mentally ill have some other status, uh, not uh, a normal citizen, as it were, but, but have some other different status than other citizens. Now, um, if they have been shown to be violent or dangerous, sure, 
but then what about people who have no history of mental illness? If they have been proven to be violent or dangerous, should not their access to being able to purchase firearms be restricted? Uh, perhaps that's what's behind Senator Schumer's legislation. It's not just about mental illness. He wants states to report violent crimes, and including domestic violence, uh, to the federal uh, database that's checked when someone goes to purchase a firearm. And then there's the issue that we talked about earlier where it concerned uh, the inability to predict violent behavior among the mentally ill. And, you know, experts uh, have long since said, look, you can't do this. It's too difficult to do. And the only indicator of potential future violence is past violence. So unless someone has already acted out that way, you just don't know. Uh, so, again, to just say, well, we're going to keep a database of people who've had serious mental illness and whether they were violent or not, because of that, they can't purchase guns. You know, is, is that fair? Is it accurate? Will it prevent violent crimes? Will it prevent tragedies like have taken place recently? Uh, no one can really say. Uh, so, really, I see these both senators' efforts um, as halting at best. Um, <clears throat> really, the only solution is to make mental health diagnosis and treatment a lot more thorough and comprehensive and easier to get and access for many more people, something that's going to take a lot more work than just passing a piece of legislation in Congress. Let's move on to other mental health-related news. <clears throat> um, however, there is a, still a, a legal slant to this story. Eli Lilly faces its first trials in the United States over Cymbalta withdrawal. Now, Eli Lilly and company will confront the first United States trial over allegations that it failed to warn users of its popular antidepressant drug, Cymbalta, that they could suffer severe withdrawal symptoms, including suicidal thoughts and electric shock sensations. Now, let me explain a little bit about this. Cymbalta is an antidepressant. It was uh, invented and first manufactured and sold by Eli Lilly. For many years now, it's been available as a generic. The generic name of the drug is duloxetine. Uh, but, but again, since it was originally Lilly's product, they're still responsible for any adverse outcome from it, no matter how long ago it was it lost its patent and uh, it's been available as a generic. Now, what they mean by withdrawal symptoms is severe side effects that some people report when they stop taking it or come off of it. Now, strictly speaking, I think the whole notion of withdrawal is a misnomer. Withdrawal refers to something very specific. It's a physiological reaction uh, to the uh, cessation of something that someone is dependent on physiologically in the sense of something like alcohol or sedatives or painkillers, uh, narcotics, something like that, some addictive drug 
that if someone doesn't have their daily dose has uh, very severe physical symptoms. Now you may think, well, how does that differ from what these people are suffering from? Well, it, it may seem to you like only a semantic distinction, but there is a difference between withdrawal from an addictive substance as opposed to side effects from discontinuing a medication. They're, they're not the same. But regardless, let's examine this case. So one of the plaintiffs, um, a woman named Claudia, her full name is in the article, but I see no reason to use it, is one of about 250 people who have sued Lilly over Cymbalta, and the company faces three more subsequent trials involving similar claims. These early trials will be a critical test for litigation over the drug, which had 3.9 billion sales, a billion in sales in 2013 before it lost its patent protection at the end of that year, and still, despite that, brought in $561 million in the first half of this year. Cymbalta is part of a class of antidepressants known as serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, or SNRIs for short, and it was first approved by the United States Food and Drug Administration in 2004 to treat major depression, and later approval was expanded to include generalized anxiety disorder, fibromyalgia, lower back pain, osteoarthritis pain. Its prescribing directions or its label, its warnings, adds that uh, 1% or more of users who discontinue Cymbalta may experience symptoms like nausea, irritability, and insomnia, and that other symptoms such as sensory disturbances and seizures had been reported. But the plaintiffs suing Lilly allege that withdrawal symptoms are far more common, pointing to a 2005 analysis from the Journal of Affective Disorders that found that more than 44% patients reported at least one discontinuation symptom. A Lilly spokeswoman declined to comment specifically on these allegations and said that the company would vigorously defend that case and others. According to the lawsuit in California federal court, Claudia started taking Cymbalta in 2006 for anxiety when her doctor instructed her in 2012 to ease off gradually. She said that she suffered electric-like zaps, anxiety, spasms, and suicidal ideation, among other symptoms. She accused Lilly of downplaying its warnings to make the drug more marketable. Lilly said in court filings that it gave sufficient warnings and that her doctor was aware of the potential risks. A similar case is set for trial in California. Other Cymbalta lawsuits have been less successful. A New York judge last year granted Lilly a win in a case similar to this woman's, and twice a federal judge in California has denied plaintiffs' motions for class action certification on consumer protection claims related to Cymbalta marketing. The California trials and two more scheduled to start in Virginia later this month would be the first opportunities for juries to evaluate the underlying claims. 
the success or failure of these cases will give us a good sense of how they are playing to these juries. And this woman, Claudia's attorney, said, even if we lose, we have every intention of moving forward with the litigation. Now, first and foremost, my concern is for any of you, yourselves, or those of you who know people who have had these side effects, let me tell you that these are very real. Let no one say there isn't any such thing as terrible side effects from coming off Cymbalta. Uh, let me also tell you that discontinuation side effects are especially severe from Cymbalta's fellow SNRI Effexor. Um, the discontinuation side effects from that drug are legend, and they are so severe that you can suffer them even if you're just late with your daily dose, much less that you try to come off of it. Paxil, even though it's just an SSRI, also is legend for its discontinuation side effects. And in fact, many lawsuits were filed over that drug. Uh, I don't think any of those were successful. Um, it's very hard to prove this type of negligence on the part of a pharmaceutical company from not informing the public of dangers and risks. Now, it's a shame that I don't have the details of this woman Claudia's case, but what if her doctor didn't give her sufficient detailed instructions to come off the Cymbalta slowly enough to mitigate or minimize these symptoms? Um, for example, I mean, if I ever have someone come off of it, I do it painstakingly slowly and gradually to try to eliminate or at least minimize these symptoms. What if her doctor wasn't as careful? Is that really the manufacturer of the drug's fault? Um, on the other hand, you could say, shouldn't the doctor have been given this instruction in the prescribing information uh, by Lilly when it uh, first sold the drug? So again, there's all sides to the issue. Regardless, whatever medication you're on, it should be withdrawn very gradually, very slowly, one dosage increment every one to two weeks. Uh, it should take several weeks, if not a month or so, to get off one of these medication, folks. It should never be done in days. All right, well, I'm going to have to wrap up tonight's show on that note. I hope that you found the information I brought to you interesting and informative, and I hope that until we get together next time, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.